All right, our reading this evening comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came to them and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. These are the words of our Lord. While I was uh, preparing for tonight's uh, message, I was reminded of one of my favorite scenes from the movie Hoosiers. Everybody's seen Hoosiers, hadn't they? And it's when, um, if you know anything about the plot, is you know, Coach Norman Dale has shown up for his first day of practice with his new basketball team. And he shows up, but the old sort of fill-in coach is there, and he's not at all happy that Coach Dale is there. And this is the dialogue where, the, where Coach Dale sort of sets him straight. He looks at him and says, first of all, let's be real friendly here, okay? My name is Norm. Secondly, your coaching days are over. <laughs> the guy looks at him and says this. He says, look, mister, there's uh, two kinds of dumb Guy that gets naked and runs out in the snow and barks at the moon. And uh, guy who does the same thing in my living room. First one don't matter. The second one you're kind of forced to deal with. I love that scene. <laughs> Norndale looks at him and says, that's some kind of threat. But that's the rest of the movie. You'll have to go watch it. I want to pitch at you, though, tonight that there's a lot of wisdom in what old George says right there. Because, you know, most of the things that happen to us in the world are things that we can either take or leave. Uh, it's not required for us to act or not even necessarily to even have an opinion on most of the things that happen to us. But every now and then, you're kind of forced to deal with certain things. Look, y'all, we're coming tonight to the large middle portion of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is divided into three sections dealing with each member of the Trinity. We come tonight to the portion that starts to talk about who Jesus is. And what's interesting about it is there are lots and lots of Jesuses out there. Lots of opinions. You know, world religions will grant him the title of great teacher. Uh, atheists will brand him as sort of a, um, a dangerous, God-complex psycho. Um, still others, you know, Jesus is sort of 
Uh, as one writer put it, the comic uh, character of bumper sticker sloganeering and cable access freak programming. <laughs> All kinds of Jesuses out there. But I want to pitch to you the same thing that C.S. Lewis says. Because when you begin to really deal with the Jesus of the Bible, you begin to realize that the kinds of claims that this guy makes force you to deal with him. In other words, it's very difficult, yea, impossible, to have, as it were, a detached view of what this guy says. C.S. Lewis puts it in predictably perfect language. And if you've, if you've heard this quote before, listen to it again, because everybody needs to hear this quote before you graduate from college. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. <laughs> he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached, e <laughs> a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Look, in other words, what Lewis is saying is, is the stories about Jesus and the things that he did and said push you to extremes. In other words, you either have to look and reject him outright as being crazy and over the top, or you have to admit that he is who he said he was as the Son of God and follow him and give him everything. He's that kind of polarizing character. Look, y'all, this semester we are looking at this question of why believing matters in the face of the Apostles' Creed. And we come tonight to the phrase that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is a fundamental claim of Christian teaching. And what I want to look at, at it through tonight is through the lens of a bizarre story that most of your chapter headings will call the transfiguration from Matthew 17. Look, y'all, two points, but under the first point, I want to make that one kind of long. The second point is really, really short, so bear with me here. First of all, I want you to notice the majesty of Jesus in this story. Now, look, what, what's happening here? I, I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge to you and to everyone else that it's a weird story. But we tend to be very historically condescending when we read these kind of things because we're always like, you know, that's really cute. Uh, of y'all to make up these stories, you know, okay, there's a guy that started glowing, you know, like we're winking at each other. Because, you know, back then in those days, they kind of believed in that sort of hocus pocus sort of stuff. Um, now, look, whether or not you believe the Bible's um, um, writings about Jesus to be reliable or not, set that aside for a moment. 
I simply want to assure you that there's no, don't be so historically condescending. I promise you it was just as weird for someone to start glowing 2,000 years ago as it would be today. I promise. History books will bear at least to that fact. But let me see if I can set the story in context to help it make a little bit more sense. Jesus has just uncorked something to his disciples that they were not at all prepared for. And it had to do with the true nature of his mission. You see, when the disciples began to notice this Jesus character, and he's doing, look, granted, some pretty doggone cool tricks. He's feeding everybody with just a tiny bit of food. He's healing sick people. He's calming, ocean, he's calming uh, uh, storms. We'll get to that in just a second. The guy's doing amazing things. And so the disciples assume to themselves that finally, here's somebody who's going to come in, clean house, take over, and establish our people as a world power. And that was the assumption, right? <laughs> well, all of a sudden, when he gets to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus starts talking crazy talk. In other words, he looks and says, actually, what I really came for uh, was to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and those people are not going to like a thing that I say, and they're actually going to crucify me, but then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And they don't get it. As a matter of fact, if you read in the Mark version of this story, you know, the story is told again in the, in the, in the uh, Gospel of Mark. <laughs> on the way down the mountain after this happened, the disciples are talking to each other, and Mark records them as saying, and they discussed among themselves what rising from the dead could mean. In other words, the disciples had no idea that Jesus came and put something in front of them that did not compute. How can you claim to come and be setting us free from all this Roman oppression and all this talk about dying? We don't get it. You don't make, that doesn't make any sense to us at all. And so what I'm suggesting is that Jesus looked and said, you know what it may be time for? It may be time for you to see something of me that you haven't seen yet so that you can know exactly what it is or who it is that you're dealing with. <laughs> because he, and so Jesus begins to unveil his majestic glory. And you begin to see that majestic glory in three ways in this story. It's a wonderful story. The first thing that you begin to notice immediately is that Jesus' countenance changes rather dramatically. Uh, this is the first thing that sort of blew these men away is because Jesus all of a sudden begins to change. Now understand something. The passage does not say that there was a light shining on him, but that there was a light shining from him. And the passage does not suggest that it was some, I don't know, pleasant, soothing glow <laughs> after a long day in the sun. <laughs> Jesus, you have such a, <laughs> such a healthy glow this evening. That's not what they're talking about. Now, the writers suggest that it's like looking at him was like looking into the sun. It was upsetting. It hurt. <laughs> it was dazzling. And to be honest with you, a little terrifying. Now look, if you know the whole story about Jesus, you can actually see what's happening. And I had a preacher who did, gave an illustration that he reminded me of what it's like to be a father that really helped me to understand this. Uh, I have a wonderful son. He gets cuter by the day. This morning he recited in chapel at his little school. Oh, we have video of it, and it's, it's crazy cute. It'll probably be up on YouTube for the grandparents again. But Luke is great. Luke is six years old. Luke, 35 pounds or something like that. He's a little dude, you know, six years old. He's expected to be. But every now and then, Luke wants to wrestle. It's time. Come on, daddy. And he'll kind of wrap his arms around my leg or something like that, and we're going to go at it. 
Now look, you don't have to be, you don't have to be Dr. Spock or any kind of parenting expert to know that you have to be careful when a man who is a good bit larger than, I almost said the weight, but I'm not going to say that, who's a good bit larger than Luke, you don't throw your whole weight on a six-year-old child, right? Again, I'm no parenting expert, but I knew this, right? In other words, when Luke and I are wrestling, it actually takes a fair amount of restraint for me to keep from actually really doing harm to the child. Now, every now and then, though, he gets a little uppity. You know what I'm saying? He sort of, <laughs> he starts to get a little too rough, thinking that he's kind of got it. And I, I just kind of have to sort of kind of lean into him a little bit. Let him know, okay, look now, look now. <laughs> Easy does it there, buddy, you know. And show him just a little bit so that he understands, okay, got it, got it. I realize who I'm dealing with. This is what's great about having sons, right? Look, here's the thing. Jesus is showing his disciples something very much like that. It's almost as if he's saying, look, you've got to understand that for me to appear to you the way in which I have for this entire time that you've known me, is me exercising tremendous restraint. I am having to hold back enormous amounts of energy and glory and beauty and power and majesty for you to even be in the same room with me. But Jesus looks and says, I want to take you up on a mountain because I am just for a moment going to flex. <laughs> And he shows a little bit of what he really is made of. And at that very moment, he pulls back the veil and lets these people see just a little bit of what he's really made of. Look, y'all, every now and then in the New Testament, it's almost fun to watch. Jesus begins to show us the kind of power that is really behind this mask of weakness that he wears uh, while he's on earth. One of my favorite stories is one that I was reminded of by a guy named R.C. Sproul. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers. And R.C. Sproul talks about this great story of Jesus being on, the, um, on one of the seas. His and his disciples were crossing uh, a, a large lake. And we know now historically that there were these large kind of squalls that would sort of blow up on this uh, lake. And the, the water could get very rough. And there were a lot of boats and sailors who lost their lives in the midst of some of these squalls. Well, the disciples are crossing this thing, and all of a sudden, a big storm rises up, and, you know, the boat's rocking back and forth, and there's water coming over the sides. They're thinking to themselves, we're not going to make it. They're scared to death. And they look over at Jesus, right? And what's he doing? He's asleep. Asleep. And so they walk up to him, and they kind of shake him. And they're like, Jesus, don't you even care that we're going to die here? The Bible's unbelievably like minimalistic because it looks and says that Jesus woke up. You can imagine him sort of being a little groggy eyed, probably exhausted. And he looks up at him and he looks at the waves. You can imagine with a bleary eye and the sort of loose translation of the Greek. Jesus looks and goes, quiet, shut up. And boom, the disciples find themselves on a flat, calm, windless sea. Pretty cool party trick, right? Until all of a sudden, the disciples, and this is what R.C. Sproul mentioned to me. He said, at first, 
They looked around and thought the wind and the waves were scary. (laughs) Until they realized who they had in the boat with them. And the passage says that the disciples were terrified. Look, y'all, there are these times in which Jesus comes and lets lets his disciples know, you need to understand exactly who I am. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 2, says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And what that means is, is that the reason that Jesus could quiet the waves is because he was the one who was telling it to blow in the first place. Because he was upholding all things by the power of his word, in his sleep even. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain and looks and begins to show them. And the funny thing is, is he doesn't get up there and say to the disciples, all right, hey, watch this. (laughs) He's not doing a trick or anything for these people, right? He's not grandstanding for his people. What he's doing is he's just letting a little bit go. So that his disciples could look and say that their future is nowhere near as, confu- near as, as confusing and unknown as they presently think that it is. You want to know why? Because they're with him. And he's just that amazing. Jesus' countenance changes. Secondly, we also find that Jesus gets some new company. It's not just his countenance that changes, but he gets some new company. Because all of a sudden... Things get downright weird. Um, Suddenly Moses and Elijah show up. Now look, if you're a casual reader, you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) of course, uh, Moses and Elijah, they've been dead for a couple thousand years. Why not? Sure, okay. (laughs) Now look, commentators have wrestled with why this is the case, and most of them have actually come up with the same conclusion, that Moses and Elijah's presence, okay, at this particular thing, was in many ways a common designation of how to talk about the Old Testament. There's some places in the New Testament where you'll hear New Testament people talking about the, the Bible that they had at that time, which would have only been the New Testament, I mean Old Testament, does that make sense? They'll talk about it as if it's Moses and the prophets, right? Or Moses and the prophet, in many ways one of the most prolific prophets, Elijah. And so what happens is, is on this mountain in Palestine, which, by the way, was very significant. Mountains were a big deal in the Old Testament. Big revelations of who God was typically took place on mountains in the Old Testament. One of my favorite commentators uh, is a guy up in Chicago, Kent Hughes, uh, who says this. He says, why Elijah and Moses? He says, why not, I don't know, Isaiah and Jeremiah? He says, well, there are several reasons. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Both these men had previously conversed with God on mountaintops. Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb. Secondly, both of these men had been shown God's glory. Both also had famous departures from the earth. Both of these Old Testament saints had experienced rather unique deaths. One disappeared from existence rather than being seen dying in the traditional way. Moses dies on Mount Nebo and God buried him in a grave unknown only to himself. Elijah, taken up on a chariot of fire. Moses was a great lawgiver and Elijah was the great prophet. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy and Elijah was the restorer of it. Now this is the line. Together, they were an ultimate summary of the Old Testament economy. Now what did that last line mean? 
When Moses and Elijah show up, their presence is basically saying, all the stuff that we wrote from Genesis to Malachi, generally speaking, is about him. We were talking about him. (laughs) Everything that we had to say, everything we were trying to get across to you will only make sense when you find it in him. The Old Testament, as it turns out, are not moral tales. As a matter of fact, they're not about you either. (laughs) The Old Testament, these men are saying, are about Jesus and Jesus only. Now look, y'all, what this means is, is Jesus is trying to show these three disciples, you've got to understand, you've finally discovered it in me. I'm here now. I am what you have been looking for. There is finality with me. So that part of understanding Jesus' majesty is realizing that all of your life's roads finish in him. Somehow, if I'm going to make sense of my life through a Christian lens, it's going to have something to do with Jesus, period. It's all got to come back to him. He's saying to his disciples, it is about me. Everything that God has done up until this time is led up to me and me alone. That then is the challenge for every Christian. That means that every question, every philosophical inquiry, every pain, every delight ultimately has to find its way to be about him. Hmm. For those of you that embrace Christianity tonight, does that ring true for you? Hmm. So there's his countenance, there's his company, and thirdly, there is the cloud. (laughs) A cloud, for heaven's sakes, all right? Now look, one last testimony to Jesus' majesty is this cloud. What in the world was the deal with the cloud? Well, look, don't let this throw you off too much because this cloud has shown up before. It actually will show up again. The cloud in the Old Testament was kind of a big deal. When the cloud showed up, everybody knew that it was God. And it typically was not a good thing. Let me see if I can give you a couple of examples. In the Old Testament, the cloud at nighttime became a pillar of fire that led the children of Israel through the desert in Exodus 13. The cloud passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock so that Moses wouldn't actually look upon his face in Exodus 33. The cloud covered the entire tent of meeting, this thing called the tabernacle, so that even Moses couldn't enter it was so glorious in Exodus chapter 40. The cloud filled Solomon's temple hundreds of years later on the day of the dedication of the new temple so that even the priests couldn't make it in to perform their duties in 1 Kings chapter 8. The prophet Ezekiel saw the cloud symbolically rise from over the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the temple because Israel had apostatized in Ezekiel chapter 8. A few months after the story that we're reading tonight, a few months later, Jesus would actually leave the earth on this cloud in Acts chapter 1. And one day, the Bible says, those who know Jesus by faith will actually meet him in this cloud in the air as it descends to bring in the last days from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's what it means. (laughs) The cloud equaled God's presence. And that was not a good thing. 
And we look at ourselves and we wonder, well, why not? There's times which I just really want to know if God's there. I need his comfort for me. Hmm, careful about that. Because the disciples are terrified. In other versions of this, it says they fall down on their face as dead. Why? Because these guys knew that when you came into the cloud, it was fatal. You were dead. It was it. This is not like some benign, like dewy mist that sort of fell on these men that gave them sort of this warm fuzzy. Did you hear that voice? That was awesome. No, it's not what happened. This was the precursor, the last thing you saw before you died, and they knew it. This summer, I actually braved watching, it's an old movie now, it's a couple years old, uh, Black Hawk Down. I, violence, for some reason, kind of weirds me out in, in movies. It's kind of weird. And I knew this was going to be a violent movie, but I thought, you know what, you can't not watch Black Hawk Down. What happened in this thing? So I watched it. And there's one particular scene that just ugh, it haunts me. What happens is, is there's a guy, a soldier, who's trying to fend off you know, a handful of Somali attackers. And at one point, he's succeeding until he kind of looks up and looks down the streets. And down the streets, y'all, are these hundreds of Somali militia, all of them with guns heading his way. And the director, Ridley Scott, sort of focuses in for just a flash second on this soldier's face as he registers exactly what's going on and what's getting ready to happen. And that is, he's dead. He's dead. He knows he's a goner. It's nothing more than a matter of time. And I'll be honest with you, just watching it on screen gives me, gave me a pit in my stomach. And even thinking about it right now kind of does as much. But what must it have been like for the disciples to have that cloud come down and to be terrified in the same way in which that soldier was? Why? Why would that be so terrifying? Can I try to venture an answer? Look, y'all, when the cloud comes down, in that instant... All of your spiritual accounts get called. Every deed that you ever did gets laid open. Every fault that you've conveniently kind of passed over through either inattention or just trying to accentuate the positive suddenly comes out in vivid relief. And not only that, you realize that you're facing a death sentence. Remember what it was like to drive home as a teenager when you got the call from your parents that you were in big trouble? <laughs> Multiply that times a million. And that's what it was like to go into the cloud. Now look, y'all, Jesus is looking and saying that no matter what you do with my countenance, with my company, and with this cloud, you need to understand that whatever you do with me you will not ask me into your life to be your personal assistant. It's not going to happen. In other words, to think that he is such to you is to not get him, or at least not to have read him. We say these things to each other like, oh, you follow Jesus. Good for you. You know, I'm not really religious myself, but you know, I'm happy that you found something that works for you. No. To talk that way betrays the fact that you don't know how he comes to us in this book. <laughs> to say that you follow this man is a wild-eyed, imperialistic claim over every square inch of your life. 
He is, to quote Hebrews 1 again, the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Look, y'all. If you claim to be a Christian tonight, you do not serve an impotent sovereign, but you stand in front of the terrifying majesty of God. Hmm. So much so that we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, with great reverence. Now, last thought and the second point, (laughs) much shorter. I wanted you to see the majesty of Jesus, but I also want you to see the hint of the ministry of Jesus because that's not the end of the story. You should be asking yourself this question. If the death sentence comes when the cloud shows up, then why didn't these guys die? I want to suggest to you that it's because of Jesus' words. What does he say? Rise and have no fear. You see, Jesus is putting a heretofore unheard of situation in front of his disciples. How can you have the holy, terrifying presence of God in your midst and not be afraid? How can you do that? And in these few words, Jesus is talking about a death sentence. But you know what? He's not talking about our death sentence. What Jesus is talking about is his death sentence. In other words, Jesus is going to come and face the very thing of which you are the most afraid. And he's going to be judged for it. Why? So that you and I can survive his majesty and be comforted by it instead of terrified by it. Do you see now why believing in this Jesus supremely matters Because it's the only God of world religions that presents to you a suffering sovereign. How do you put those together unless they meet in him? God comes and does something that no other religion has accomplished because he looks and says, I'm going to take all of the fear, all of the exposure, all of the embarrassment that you have when you stand before someone who knows everything about you like I do. And I'm going to turn the gun on myself. And I'm going to bear that sentence on myself, in my own person. So that in the end, you can survive it. That you can be a part of my majesty and not be destroyed by it, but to be comforted in it through your suffering. Jesus took the capital F fear from us so that we could face the little f fears. So that we can all of a sudden stare down the stuff inside us that threatens to bear us down. Wow. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, the Lord? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then help us to grapple with just the story. Help us to grapple with what it is that you say about yourself and the claims that you make for yourself. 
We ask, Lord Jesus, that maybe tonight we might get a glimpse of you that we didn't have before. Unfortunately, Lord, we have resigned you to the benign, to the mundane, to the sweet, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And we've not even stopped to think about the fact that the only reason why the molecules in our body are holding together right now is because you are telling them to. Forgive us that we have cast you in such an impotent light. And maybe tonight allow us to see you as the one who hung the stars in the sky and who upholds everything that we do and say by the word of your power. And in so doing, in getting a right view of you, may we get a right view of ourselves and thereby be transformed by it. We want to change. We don't want to be this way. Would you work in us? Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.